Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Max Verstappen beats Lewis Hamilton to a tight victory in Austin, but the Mercedes driver is disqualified for a post-race technical breach. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 18, the United States Grand Prix. The battle for victory at the Circuit of the Americas was one of the season's closest, with the lead swapping between Lando Norris, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in a strategically intriguing race. Norris didn't have the tyre life to stick with the Dutchman, and he was soon dispatched, while Hamilton and Mercedes equivocated on whether to make one stop or two. It meant Hamilton lost track position to Verstappen early, but it gave him a shot at a thrilling chase for victory at the conclusion, falling just two seconds short. So was this a race win lost to Hamilton, and does it matter anyway given he was disqualified? To help answer those questions, I'm joined by Ed Straw from The Race and, of course, the host of The Race F1 podcast. Ed, how are you going? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Enjoying a little bit more time in America. I'm in San Antonio by the airport, so hopefully you won't hear too many planes flying past <laughs> heading off to Mexico tomorrow. Obviously, it's a busy triple header, but yeah, always a fun part of the season, this one. Even though the championship's all done and dusted, I do like this, this triple header. I'd probably prefer a bit of a gap in between... <laughs> Maybe one pair of races in this one, but uh, all three are great events. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to Mexico already. At least we only had one triple header for the year. I think that does take a little bit of the sting out of it. So not such a bad thing. An interesting race too. At least uh, post-championship, we've got, well, one out of four interesting races. Let's hope the trend can remain up at that level. But let's start with the last part of this race first, the disqualifications Uh, Both Lewis Hamilton and Charles Leclerc thrown out of the classification for excessive plank wear for running their car too low, in other words. Generally speaking, we know teams like to run their cars as low as possible because that tends to be where the most downforce is generated. Is the risk of disqualification the only trade-off these teams were working with on Friday in that one practice session? In other words, were Ferrari and Mercedes weighing up the benefit of that low car versus disqualification? Or is it really more, I guess, honest a mistake than that? No, I think it was an honest mistake. There's no real benefit to taking big risks with it. You bet you want to run the car as low as you can, but you don't take big risks with it. Indeed, we see this with Red Bull. They're, they're engineering a little bit of security in terms of that because um, they, had, they had problems a few times earlier this season, even at Spa when they were lifting through Eau Rouge, having to be a little bit careful. But yeah, you generally calibrate it. You set your ride height to be as low as you can, but there's no point in pushing into the danger zone because you're going to get thrown out. So it's a mistake rather than anything else and the wider circumstance of the weekend fed into that. Let's talk about some of those circumstances because I feel like for the last couple of years we've been talking about how the sprint affects weekends in a really more general sense, talking about it as though it's the first stint of a race and all that kind of stuff. And there are elements of that we'll get to a little bit later on. But this is certainly the biggest consequence from a sprint I can think of, or at least partly from a sprint. Having one hour of practice as opposed to three means there's less time for high fuel runs, all that kind of stuff. 
uh, certainly adjusting the level of the, or the ride height rather, and in Mercedes' case, with a new floor, adjusting to the new floor, dealing with all of that in the space of one hour. Does this change the way we think about that reduction in practice time, do you think? The fact that actually the stakes are much higher than we've often been inclined to say, well, you know, the F1 teams, they'll get it right, they can figure it out in one hour. So I feel like actually maybe we've been underestimating that challenge a little bit? Yeah, I think it does show that there are times when you need those practice sessions to be absolutely sure and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Ultimately, if you're not sure, you can break part for me. We have seen teams do that. Alpine earlier this year did it in Baku because they just thought they were going to have plank troubles. So they, uh, after having a troubled FP1, they broke part for me. We've seen other teams having to make dramatic changes to the ride height between Friday and Saturday for the same fears. Obviously, you don't quite have that luxury in a, in a sprint weekend. But I think it does show that if you don't hit the ground running with everything right, it robs you of that time to adapt. But then if that's the case, you've got to, if there's any uncertainty, you've got to err on the side of caution, haven't you, ultimately? Now, obviously, there's other factors here. The Circuit of the Americas is a bumpy track. It's built on some quite high plasticity clay, which reacts a lot to absorbing water and temperature variation and all that. So this track just moves constantly, no matter how much they resurface it. And there's been all sorts of resurfacing works. In places, it's quite a patchwork. So there's new bumps appearing all the time. So you've got this bumpy track as well, which causes you uh, causes you some problems. So it's those two things that, that, um, those two things that tricked you. And yeah, if you don't have the three free practice sessions you've got to get it right and if you haven't got it right in fp1 then you need to make changes later on and you also need to be able to factor in what will happen when you're running on full fuel load which obviously mercedes and ferrari weren't able to do so it's all these things and perhaps it shows that certain circuits they need to prioritize that a little bit more on a sprint weekend to make absolutely sure they don't hit trouble but ultimately a load of other teams didn't uh, make the mistake the McLaren of Lando Norris was checked the Max Verstappen Red Bull was checked so it's not impossible so it's it, this is not a, oh these things happen when it is a big mistake and they'll be kicking themselves for doing it but there are reasons why it happens and the sprint just makes it that little bit harder so just a warning they've got to be more careful I'm pretty confident Ed you're the first person to have ever said the phrase high plasticity clay on this podcast so very well done to you your listeners have been missing out <laughs> Yeah, wow, it's incredible. I do like uh, over the course of covering Formula One, you do uh, at moments become experts in other things. Uh, weather is usually one of the big ones, but now soil types as well. That, that's added to the lexicon of many an F1 journalist. Did you like the way that I said the phrase as if I really knew what it meant and hadn't yeah. just learned it about 48 hours ago? It's good, isn't it? <laughs> I'm confident you did. Confident you know it. As a broader question, before we move on to some of the strategy elements, Park Ferme is such a major part of an F1 weekend. It happens uh, at the start of qualifying, regardless of whether it's a sprint or a traditional Grand Prix weekend. Obviously, in the sprint, that means it's after one practice session. It happens on Friday night, and the cars that run through the weekend are the same. They're virtually untouched in terms of all the major setup parameters. This was introduced originally as a cost-saving measure, in effect, by meaning teams had a more narrow funnel, I suppose, to devote their resources. Is it still required in Formula One, do you think? Particularly when we're looking at Sprint Weekend, and admittedly the Sprint Weekend format is pretty changeable and may change again next year. Is Park Ferme a bigger question to be considered in how we go forward with Formula One and the way the weekend works? I think generally it's a good idea, particularly for those working on the cars, because otherwise if they've got the chance, teams will just have the cars taken apart and put back together just for the sake of it to be rigorous and to change things. And I think just for 
the well-being of the people who have to do that work, it's a good idea for it to be there. I do think on sprint weekends it's a slightly strange scenario because you have to lock in so early. So I wonder if on sprint weekends there maybe needs to be some allowance to do something different. You could even allow part from A to be broken for the sprint day on the Saturday and then you go back to the previous settings for Sunday maybe, who knows. So I think it's a pragmatic thing to have there. But I do think on yeah on sprint weekends maybe they need to think through what needs to be done a little bit more just to be absolutely certain that uh, that teams don't hit trouble. But yeah, if if it's lifted, it'll just get silly and people will be doing all-nighters all the time and a triple header of all-nighters in this uh, <laughs> part of the world would leave rather a lot of mechanics um, pretty much uh, incapable of working, I suspect. So for well-being perspective, I think it's important not to do it. But I don't think that means that the, the rules shouldn't just be scrutinised a little bit because... Just because you don't want the cars dismantled and major changes doesn't mean you can't allow some setup changes, perhaps. you Perhaps you extend the number of parameters. Obviously, you can adjust the, the flap, the front wing flap. That, that's something you can do, and there's various driver tools that they can fiddle with. Maybe the list should be expanded a little bit, perhaps. I, I don't know. And maybe ride heights actually is is one of those, although you'd want to make sure that people weren't going to extremes in terms of running live and qualifying and then having to run higher for the race but perhaps this is an example of it being worth thinking about whether there's something that that needs to be done it doesn't necessarily mean mercedes and ferrari would have noticed it because they still didn't run on high fuel till the start of the race exactly right that's the thing if you can't notice it till the grand prix anyway well then well you pass the red zone in any case let's have a look at the grand prix proper now in a little bit more detail and well i guess the race that we didn't have which was the battle for victory we did have it on track but in retrospect, well, Lewis Hamilton was never in the race because he was disqualified. But Max Verstappen won on the road by only 2.2 seconds ahead of Hamilton, an unusually small margin by this year's standards, generally speaking. Mercedes made quite a late call to make a Hamilton's race a two-stop strategy instead of a one. Just a few laps after Verstappen, but it was enough to cost him track position early on in the race with Max starting down in sixth. And then we got that thrilling fight back, the conclusion where it seemed like Hamilton might be able to catch Verstappen, ultimately didn't though. Is it too simple to say that that late call on Mercedes' part cost Lewis Hamilton a victory? And was it too conservative from a team that's normally looking forward? Yeah, I don't think you can say with certainty that with a different strategy they'd have won and it definitely cost them a win, but definitely it wasn't the better strategy ultimately. It's an interesting one for Mercedes because they quite like the idea of a one-stopper because they thought, well, on a two-stopper matching Verstappen, we're not going to beat him. So the one-stopper, there's a chance. So they decided to take that route. The two things they didn't know were, one, that Verstappen was having braking problems all the way through the race. It started quite early on, so his pace was contained. I think they just thought in the first stint he was taking his time coming through. It wasn't until about half distance he got into the lead. And then, of course, they said to Hamilton, right, can you go another five laps or so? And Lewis was like, not sure, (laughs) not entirely confident. And they struck out to extend and go for this one-stopper, and then the the tyres went away massively more than expected. So he was trying to get to lap 23, I think, and he had to stop on lap 20, so it was only a four-lap offset. So they ended up a little bit in between on this strategy anyway. So there was a lot of time given away there, and Hamilton went slightly deep in the pit box as well. So there was a lot of time lost there, and the eventual gap was, what, 2.2 seconds, something like that, to, uh, to Verstappen. So it's very easy to put Hamilton onto a committed two stopper earlier on and he gains more than 2.2 seconds however the big question is how much more did Verstappen have to have responded he was having trouble but he could also control 
the race at his own pace. So I'm sure there'd have been a little bit more in there. What we can say with absolute certainty is that Mercedes did cost themselves a better chance of winning by taking this strategy. However, they did it because knowing what they knew then, the one-stopper was the aggressive strategy that might have given given them the chance, whereas doing a two-stopper matching Verstappen would almost certainly, as far as they knew, have ensured Red Bull would win. So it's one of those. With hindsight, you can can say anything. But uh, yeah, those were the factors that led them to do what they did. And it's a little bit unfortunate, but... In hindsight, perhaps a bit of a relief because imagine if they'd lost a victory to uh, to this top to, to the disqualification, that would have been a rather uh, cool, cruel twist of fate. So perhaps they did themselves a favour in the in that regard. But yeah, I, I'm not going to say it was deeply stupid. The strategy, maybe they could have picked up the extent of the Red Bull breaking troubles earlier. Obviously, they all monitor each other's radio channels and that kind of thing. I wasn't listening to Verstappen throughout that first part of the race. So I'm not sure how early it would have been apparent. They did changed some brake components overnight, Red Bull said. So there was just something that wasn't working. Obviously, the way you bring in brake parts can have a big impact on the way they work. Something obviously didn't quite go right there. And Verstappen said the car felt completely different to the sprint race. So all of those factors combined to mean that Mercedes probably made a reasonable and attacking decision in the moment that turned out to be an unreasonable, failed and actually quite negative looking decision (laughs) in retrospect. And that's what sometimes happens. It's a dynamic sport, isn't it? Yeah, I have been thinking all so far the last couple of days since the race that we are fortunate in a weird way that, that Hamilton didn't win. I mean, not we don't have any stake in it personally, but just it would have been much uglier. <laughs> would have been significantly uglier and we'd be talking about a, a, a winner being disqualified. Part of the, that time difference, and I know it's very easy when you add up all the little mistakes over a, over a race and you say, wow, look, there was the 2.2 seconds there, but around about a second was lost in pit lane, a little bit under, maybe about eight-tenths of a second in pit lane relative to Verstappen. Lewis Hamilton had a couple of long stops, as you said, a little bit long, uh, I think, in that first stop in his box. But Toto Wolff also was talking about how Mercedes generally slower pit stops, particularly in this race, but even over the course of the year, uh, a little bit equipment-related but they should also be reviewing their procedures. A lot of time can be won and lost in pit stops. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how McLaren has the fastest ever pit stop in Formula 1, now down at 1.8 seconds. Is it too much to read into this that actually Mercedes over the last 18 months, by being too focused on improving the car, obviously, have lost some strength in other areas we might have considered traditional strengths of theirs in their more dominant times of the last decade? There's potentially a little bit of that. I think also it's a cost cap factor as well. They've talked about this in the past that some of the equipment, because the equipment partly frames how quickly the pit stops can be executed. Most of it is in how well it's choreographed and executed, but there is a a kind of limit to how long stuff will take based on the kit you've got. So they've got a little bit of a disadvantage there, which... It's an area they should have been on top of a little bit earlier and before the cost cap kicked in, perhaps they could have moved a little bit on that and had a bit more leeway to ensure they had the same ultimate potential. But yeah, you could argue that uh, that they need to concentrate a little bit more on that because it is it is a weakness. And that's something they do need to be quite concerned about because if their car is as good as they want it to be next year, so a Red Bull beater or challenger, which uh, is far, far, far easier said than done, they don't want to consistently be losing time in, in the pits. And even if it's half a second or seven tenths of a second, that can be quite significant, particularly if you're doing it consistently. So yeah, it's an area for Mercedes to look at. I just don't know how constrained they are by exactly what they can spend. But I would say it's something they should focus on 
I'm sure they're working just as hard in terms of the the practice and the fitness of the the crew, etc., and the dedication of the crew. So yeah, that there's an equipment thing, and then little things like making sure Hamilton doesn't overrun. Drivers do that sometimes. That does happen. Um, so unless he's doing that on a serial basis, which I don't think he is, I don't think that's a major problem. But as you say, when margins are small, there's lots of places you can find time from, and the pit stops is one of them, and that's consistently just adding a little bit to the Mercedes race time. And you should also bear in mind that around the pit stops is quite time sensitive and how hard you go on the tyres when they're fresh and they've got the most tread and that tread moves around can influence the longevity and the degradation over the whole stint. So let's say you have to, because you've given away three quarters of a second in a pit stop to someone, be a little bit more attacking on that outlap that actually affects you throughout the whole stint. So there's compound gains and losses we're talking about there, which is why it's even more important than just the, the in-pit lane time. You touched on something there. It's become one of the talking points of this race because we got such a close finish, which was that Mercedes looked like they took quite a reasonable step forward this weekend anyway. They brought this new floor. They said it would have a performance impact. In particular, they said it was also aimed at next year's car. And then the fact that victory seemed quite close seemed very heartening. Lewis Hamilton also talked about this being one of the few upgrades he's actually felt, which maybe is broader commentary on the way Mercedes has been going in the last 18 months or so. Is it hard? I mean, it is hard to read into any one race, logically enough, particularly a circuit that, okay, it is relatively representative, I think, but there are outlying features of of Coda, the bumps being one of them, right, had all that kind of stuff. But is it buoying, do you think, for Mercedes this race? Or is that too optimistic a read, given that Red Bull, talking in retrospect, was relatively hamstrung in terms of Max Verstappen's performance anyway? I think if you're purely looking at the performance and saying, oh, that shows it's working really well, you have to be quite careful because, yeah, Red Bull were a bit restricted because of the right height. Obviously, theirs is a car that works the underfloor really well because they can really generate a lot of downforce with the ground effect floor without hitting porpoising troubles, but they have to run higher. You give up some of that. You run some more top body aero, bigger rear wing in order to offset that. You lose some of your efficiency. So all of those things did hold Red Bull back. But I think what is positive for Mercedes is the upgrade was working exactly as they wanted. And it's all about making the underfloor work better. There's changes around the front as well of it, which is all about the distribution of how much airflow you're channeling into the Venturi tunnels under the car and how much is going around the outside and what you're doing with it. Now, in terms of just pure downforce, the more you shove into the <laughs> into the Venturi tunnels, the better in the crudest possible way. But you need to be able to control it and have, have an effect where it's not going to start porpoising and that kind of thing. So it's all about showing they've got a good understanding of that. They seem pretty happy with that. So that that's encouraging. We don't know if the way the uh, the upgrade worked affected their judgment on the ride heights. That's impossible for us to uh, to know. We also don't know whether if they're running a little bit lower than expected, that will have boosted the performance artificially. I doubt it will have revolutionised it or anything. So there's a few imponderables there, but the team seems genuinely quite content with this little gentle step. And it was all about showing that their understanding, their underlying science, what they're trying to do, is in the right direction and things are working as they should do. And according to them, it was all working as expected. So it's a gentle positive for Mercedes. And it says that what they're doing with the 24 car is in the right direction. Whether it's enough, that's an entirely different question. But right direction, fast enough, who knows? Yes, we'll take right direction for now for the sake of the championship battle. Although we thought that as well around this time last year. So maybe let's all withhold judgment until next uh, February or March during testing. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A word here on McLaren as well. Lando Norris had a, a very strong weekend, bouncing back from some disappointments in Qatar, led the early part of the race. Was in that mix, certainly we got a sense of that in the sprint as well, roughly in that front-running mix, couldn't hold it over the course of the race, uh, tyre wear being greater for McLaren than it was for Mercedes and, and certainly Red Bull Racing. Circuit of the Americas has sort of a little bit of everything for, for any car. We've got the high-speed sweeps, long straights, some slow corners, some technical stuff. It's maybe not necessarily, in its general sense, the most representative circuit, but it does have a little bit of everyone, as I, a little bit for everyone, rather, as I said. Can we say at round 18, I know there's only one race snapshot, but that it was a fairly well-rounded picture of where the performance is for those front runners at the moment? I think it's reasonable, yeah. It wasn't out of kilter with uh, what we've seen elsewhere. Probably yeah, it held Red Bull back a bit, which flattered a few people. Uh, we did see McLaren. T- McLaren tends to be helped a little bit by the fresh tyres, particularly on circuits with certain corners they don't agree with. That car really struggled at turn 11 at the hairpin. That's where they were losing quite a bit of time. And Norris actually had a really big wide moment there that cost him a chunk of time during the race. And yeah, so they had a car that maybe could have nicked pole, but was really the third fastest car in the race. And they pretty much felt they maximised the race because with Norris, they just thought, well, we're going to run fairly attacking and do a fairly attacking two-stopper and see if we can run with uh, run with Red Bull. And then, yeah, we sort of saw this Ferrari pattern where they were very quick over a single lap, Charles Leclerc on pole, not quite so strong uh, in the race conditions and also not quite so strategically sensible as well with, uh, with uh, Leclerc. So I think it was reasonable. I think that group behind Red Bull is a little bit too tight for there to be a really set pattern. But Ferrari... Mercedes and McLaren were all sort of much of a muchness and it's just what conditions they were running better in and whether they're better in race or qualifying and that kind of thing and I think any particular given weekend now those three teams you're kind of it's almost it almost feels like it's not random but it, it feels like they're shuffling around uh weekend to weekend which is kind of what we saw during the, the Kota weekend so yeah it, it was reasonably representative but with that bumpy track uh, throwing the curveball in that uh, distorted things slightly. Let's talk about Ferrari now because Charles Leclerc, not, well, not only was he disqualified, so he became a talking point after the race, but he was on pole. A great performance from him. In contention, surely, be considered one of Formula One's fastest drivers at the moment anyway. If only had the more consistent ability to be on pole position and contend for race wins, obviously, from his perspective. The only driver, well, the only one the driver in the front pack that, that went for the one-stop strategy, Daniel Ricciardo also didn't finish last and then made a second stop subsequently to repair some damage and go for a, a fast lap, essentially, even though he was in no contention for the point. But Charles Leclerc, sticking to that one-stop strategy, his teammate Carlos Sainz was switched early on, having intended to do the same, but he covered Max Verstappen and ended up eventually rising onto the podium past penalties. We Look, this almost the premise of this podcast has been to criticise Ferrari, I feel bad saying that, but they've often been worthy of a little bit of strategic criticism anyway. This year have been much more solid, I felt, maybe just because they've not been so close to the championship or the victory fight rather that uh, it's been harder to to really say where they've been winning or losing it looking at Leclerc's race in particular is this just a matter of 
committing, you know, committing sunk costs, if you like, in this situation? Or is this really just a inescapable mistake for Ferrari, considering several, several other teams had a similar approach but switched really quite quickly? Yeah, it was certainly a mistake. Their justification wasn't great when Fred Vasseur tried to explain why they were so confident it would work and, and it wasn't going to work. I don't know whether they were misled by the fact science did that really good job in the sprint race on the softs because he managed those very well and they sort of seemed to be going away then stabilised a bit, did a very good job there. I don't know whether that misled them, but yeah, very, very odd uh, with Leclerc. I, I don't think it was completely out of the question to do a one-stopper going into the race, but you would have had a big asterisk against it. And Ferrari didn't seem to. And then it was late on in the race, well, much later on, when they seemed to realise it all gone a bit wrong. And we had that radio message in the broadcast feed where they said something like, oh, we're going to stay with this plan now, plan Z or whatever it was. <laughs> and the clerk said, well, it doesn't really matter now, does it? Because the race is ruined anyway. <laughs> so they'd, um, they'd, they'd long since um, sailed past the sunk cost point at, at, at that stage. So, yeah, it was just a big error by them. I think they could have seen that one coming a little bit more. But sometimes you you commit to it and you accept you're going to lose a certain amount of time but if you don't have a good threshold for how much time you can lose and you don't think in your feet sometimes it just goes wrong for you and that's again partly going to be down to the sprint weekend and the the lack of tyre evaluation that said they did have a race on Saturday of a healthy stint length in which they ran the mediums to make a judgment so yeah, not not ideal from Ferrari, and I think people were pretty puzzled by uh, by what they were what they were doing. And yeah, they they should have moved Leclerc off that much much earlier. So I'm not surprised he was disappointed. And I can't really come up with a convincing explanation for why they did that. That relationship between Ferrari and Charles Leclerc has always been an interesting one because they certainly want him to be central to the team's plans in the future. He's obviously extremely quick. We've he's seen that in his his pole position count. Teams yet to really be in an extensive position to challenge for regular wins other than maybe the first half of last year and we've talked over the last I guess year or so about the trust between the Ferrari drivers and the strategists we often hear them questioning particularly Carlos Sainz even in some cases overruling Ferrari strategists from the cockpit I thought there were a couple of interesting radio messages one of them you picked up there where he essentially a little bit angry about having uh, his strategy ruined and then late in the race when team orders were called for Carlos Sainz to move ahead of him perfectly reasonable call in the context of Carlos escaping from Sergio Perez behind him but at the time Charles seemed pretty upset talked about post-race uh, discussions obviously understood afterwards but I thought that 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 being the first reaction was a little bit interesting is that still something Ferrari needs to work on the trust element particularly is it one reasonably clean season not going to be enough yeah, you know, I still think there's some question marks there. Obviously, Leclerc isn't as good as Sainz at really seeing the big picture in the race. Sainz is very good at that. And that's more of a reflection of Sainz's sharpness and ability rather than a criticism of Leclerc, because not many drivers can do that. Jensen Button is one who used to be very, very good at that as well. And there's not that many drivers who have a really good command of what's going on. And we do hear Sainz sometimes overruling things and pushing back. And Leclerc's a little bit less keen to, and I don't think he's as secure in his in his own mind about what he needs to do so that means he's more reliant on the pit wall and because there have been so many mistakes <laughs> during his time there I think that creates that extra nervousness and I, I think the frustration probably with science being ordered past him was just tied to the strategy like you say he'll have looked at it in the cold light a day after and been like yeah well, okay I, I see that because his race was ruined as he'd said but it probably just felt like an extra kick in the teeth but it's funny, the, the whole Ferrari strategy thing it has been pretty good this year. This maybe was just a, a one-off. They're not idiots. They're not stupid. The, the people who are putting this together are 
very capable and they've got all the live um, monitoring systems, etc. They're not sort of making it up as they go along. But there does seem to be a little bit of a leadership and decision-making problem and a tendency, when you refer to sunk costs, where they they seem to set on a course of action and not be dynamic enough to change it. There's almost a, a worry about they don't want to make, intervene and change something and be wrong in making that change, and that almost paralyzes them sometimes. I don't think it's been seen so much this year, but I do think that's a, that's something that needs to be got on top of. And that's that's more a leadership and decision-making thing than fundamentally your strategy team are useless and I'm not a big fan of this so I'll just replace everyone kind of mentality because all the data's there it's about how you use it to inform your decisions and it's not quite right but yeah Leclerc clearly doesn't have a complete faith in the uh, in the Ferrari strategy team and he doesn't really have that broad view of the race that he needs to be secure in overruling and that's probably always going to be the case it's very very difficult to and drivers ultimately will never know everything there will always be times where there's factors they cannot possibly know and comprehend because they can't see everything but science is very good at that but that also I think means that they need to ask why science was on the two-stopper and that didn't trigger a discussion about whether it was a good idea was it consciously splitting strategy Fred Vasseur didn't say it was just said they thought the one stop would work and it was a mistake and it was a mistake because it was a mistake (laughs) so he didn't really have an explanation for why so yeah the clerk certainly won't trust them uh, entirely. They need to work on that a little bit if they're going to be able to win championships. And as a final question, Ed, regular listeners to this podcast, and well, certainly it struck me anyway, that the last time we spoke to you was Monaco. We were talking about a very different race, which was well, in similar in some senses, an, an almost win for a team that wasn't Red Bull Racing. But in that case, it was Aston Martin and Fernando Alonso, a team that played very little role in the end in the United States Grand Prix. A decent points result was probably on the cards for them, despite starting from pit lane in both cases, and Lance Stroll did score some minor points anyway. But on a weekend in which we're talking a lot about teams looking forward to next year, Mercedes upgrade, McLaren's upgrades over the course of this season looking pretty stable, and maybe even Ferrari in the last couple of rounds unlocking a little bit of something... What does that say about where Aston Martin is? Can we read into actually maybe that Formula One reverts to type and having the regular big players being up there and less space for a relative newcomer to, to, to compete? Yeah, it's certainly been a tough second half of the season for Aston Martin. Their upgrades haven't yielded the progress hoped for. They had a Canada floor upgrade. Never since then, they've struggled a bit more with the characteristics of the car, slightly more unstable rear end. And yeah, this weekend was a tricky one for them. Actually, in the race, the pace wasn't too bad. Alonso came through quite well. Stroll obviously came through and finished, well, ultimately seventh after the exclusions. So that was quite positive. And I think their struggles all came down to the, the problems they had in FP1 when they misjudged. Slightly odd error, actually. They had too much uh, blanking on the brake cooling. So overheated the brakes. And in Stroll's case, that damaged the brake, in, brake internals. So he couldn't run anymore, whereas Alonso was at least a, able to do a program. But they were trying to back-to-back the old and new package there. So they were behind on setup. They didn't have the car in the right window, really. They decided to tear it all up, start the cars from part for May, both with setup changes, Alonso on the old spec, Stroll on the new spec. And that was the new back-to-back. That was the reason they did that. And actually, both specs were were fairly brisk and they came through nicely. They would have both been in the points had Alonso not had that bit of floor damage. So it's not quite as catastrophic as it looked for Aston Martin. But yeah, 100%, they've almost fallen into this little class with Alpine now. So that tells you maybe their development progress isn't as good as Alpine, let alone keeping up with the others at the front. So tough for Aston Martin. There's something missing in terms of their fundamental understanding that's informing their development. It could just be a localised 
thing that there's they're just going through a few bumpy waters they have to go through to understand and they'll be fine again at the start of next season but if next season's car hits the track and it's uh, it's a bit midfieldy again then that means we have to reappraise the whole progress of the team so yeah they they should be pretty worried about things i think and it's a bit too early to sound too loud an alarm but they better be on the right track with uh, with next year's car and have that understanding and control of what the car's doing because it's all about the uh you know it's so, it's so complicated to, to get the your sensitivity of the cars so it works okay the ride heights the area center of pressure shift all of these things are hugely significant and there's been talk about all sorts of things like flexi wing changes etc etc that impacted them i think it's just globally aston martin is just lacking a little bit of understanding there and as is always the way in formula one either their problems will mean they interrogate it understand it and take a step forward or they'll just continue floundering not entirely knowing it's not like they're putting nothing on the car they are making some gains but it's just not fast enough and they'll admit that yeah it'll be interesting to see how it unravels or not in the last couple of races of the season let's hope the rest of the dead rubbers are as interesting and noteworthy as the united states grand prix was and ed thanks so much for joining me to talk about it with me it's a pleasure thanks for having me There's no doubt Mercedes, McLaren, maybe even Ferrari in some circumstances, have inched closer to Red Bull Racing as the season's gone on. But it's important not to get too far ahead of ourselves. While they've all been developing their cars this season to try to make up ground, the Constructors' Champion has been fully focused on next year for months. It means the battle to overhaul Red Bull Racing next year remains as daunting as ever. Thanks very much to Ed Straw for joining me to debrief the United States Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. I'll be back next week for the Mexico City Grand Prix. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.